I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast presented by Zwift for the second rest day recap of the Vuelta. There was actually a transition day, so it's their third day off. Um, and we'll review the week that's passed. We'll catch up on Tour de l'Avenir, talk about... Uh, the new Belgian super talent, Renko Evenepoel's old news, uh, <laughs> mentioned the Tour of Britain, First Age, and Maryland Cycling Classic uh, yesterday. So lots to talk about, particularly whether Evenepoel can hang on. But the week that's been, uh, stage 10, Evenepoel wins the TT, 50-second gain. Stage 11, Groves gets his first uh, Grand Tour win. Carapaz, Estepona, Beats Vine and Co. Uh, in the heat. Stage 13, Mads Pedersen, little uphill finish. Then Pandera. Avonapol loses that 50 seconds he gained in the TT. Straight back to Roglic. Carapaz wins again. And Aronson wins yesterday on Sierra Nevada, which kind of had small gaps uh, for the Queen stage. Avonapol only losing 15 seconds. So a big week. It's it feels like to me the parkour is suggesting at Benji that the welters crammed a lot of excitement into or action into the first two weeks. Um, and even a poll, I'll just re- remind everybody where he stands. He's 134 ahead of Roglic in second, 201 ahead of Mars in third, a big gap, 449 then to Ayuso in fourth, Rodriguez in fifth on 516, just eight seconds ahead of Lopez, Almeida on seven minutes, five seconds ahead of Aronsman, O'Connor in ninth on 857, Hinley in 10th on 1136. Apart from Avonapol, who should be happy, is Enric Mars and Movistar happy with their third spot, Benji? Are UAE happy with fourth? Are Ineos happy with fifth? What do you think these sort of teams in that region are talking about on this rest day? I think the riders that are in third, fourth, and fifth position are likely, first of all, trying to see whether the third spot is obtainable. For Mars, that is one that he's going to try and defend for certain. For Ineos and UAE, that's arguably one they're interested in. They want to try and attack that in some shape or form. That's how I see their routine here. But when it comes to Mars, there's also the aspect of he was the strongest GC rider when it comes to finishing on the road the fastest on Sierra Nevada. He beat Lopez, he dropped Roglic, and Evenepoel on that climb, and Yuzo dropped as well. Like, So Maz must be hoping for more, but we'll go into the parkour in a bit of week three, and the viability of Maz doing that is not really there unless there's a bad day in one of the other competitors. And then you come towards uh, Ayambo Visma when it comes to Roglic, and the question there is different to me, because it's odd, you know, He's won this race three years in a row, and you want to ask yourself, is he fine with a second spot? Is Primoz Roglic fine with getting second at this race? And I don't think he's going to be overly happy with getting second at this race. So it wouldn't shock me if he tries something that is out there, that is more 
from further on one of the stages, perhaps a stage 20, where opportunities arise and he might try and benefit from it. But again, parkour-wise, is there opportunities for that? We'll go into it in a bit. But are you also thinking that Roglic is more willing to risk it all just to get that victory? I think so. I mean, does second really matter to him? I'm not sure the parkour, though, and his team makes it difficult in this third week. I agree with you said about Mask. Like, when I think about it, he finishes this, uh, he finishes the same distance behind Roglic on this second re- proper rest day as at the first rest day, which to me is crazy. Oh, no. Yeah. In, in, no, on the on the first rest day proper, he was in second on thirty seconds plus ahead of Roglic. Sorry, I misspoke. I mean, oh. after the TT, he then moved into third, twenty seconds back, and to have been strong enough to go with him on Pandera, and then dropping him on Sierra Nevada to only be sitting twenty seconds back. I think, I think they would have wanted more from those legs, and it's going to be tough to overcome Roglic on the terrain coming up. Uh, before we get to that, maybe a rest day for the riders, but it's the perfect time to get on Zwift. I'm going to be hopping on straight after this. You can see me hydrating, as always, throughout <laughs> every episode, constantly drinking about three different things. And indoor season is here. Just went past my neighbours. They're about 80 years old. They speak to me in Catalan only. I speak to them back in Spanish. Do we understand each other? Maybe not. Uh pretty well but they're it's autumn it's swift season you know why because they're foraging for mushrooms huge in andorra and catalonia and so it's not just the fact that it's september it's if my neighbor has mushrooms it means it's time to hop in on swift so new updates rolling out the ability to chase your pb ghost across segments a new race series all landing soon plus of course swift academy Time to sign up for that, particularly if you're in the Southern Hemisphere looking for a pro contract. For more information or to start your free seven-day trial, head to Zwift.com. Do people forage in Belgium, Benji? Like what's like for mushrooms and stuff? Is that a big activity? How am I supposed to know? I watch cycling like 24-7. So I've got no time to watch other sports. I've got no time to go outside and see what people do in force. So I can't tell you. I generally can't tell you what people are doing here in Belgium. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have to live with the uncertainty of Belgian foresting, I'm afraid. But I do enjoy your wonderful, wonderful story throughout <laughs> the uh, Zwift segment there. Let's get back to uh, talking about the race. And I've got a question for you. We've spoken a bit already in this podcast about Roglic and whether he will be willing to go all out to take this victory again by attacking early and so forth. But do you think that, that M. Evenepoel is currently in a position that he is not possible to lose his Vuelta anymore? Or do you think that he can still lose his Vuelta? And what does the parkour say in terms of Remco's ability to finish this in the red jersey? Yeah, of course he can He can lose the Vuelta, but it's, it's a really, really soft parkour. I mean, when I want to look at the stage, for example, let's pick out a stage, uh, stage five of Tour de Suisse, he had a shocker. Uh, on that stage, he lost to glass of 2 minutes 12 on GC. And that's almost a harder stage. They did repetitions of like a 2.5K, 8% climb the entire time. I would say that we don't have a stage like that in this the remainder of this welter. So 
let's talk about what stages there actually are. Like stage 16, it looks like a Mads Pedersen stage. There's one climb, <laughs> 1,500 metres, 6%. I mean, <laughs> with 8Ks to go. So that's either break or a Pedersen sprint. The next stage, 17, 160Ks. There's one categorised climb. At the end, some little rollers that are like 3% before. And that's 9Ks, 5%, although it is 2.3Ks, 7%. Followed by four K seven and a half percent. Still, this this is like a ten. The last proper bit's like a 10, 11 minute climb. Like you, okay, Roglic could out sprint him for sure, but we're talking seconds there. Uh, stage eighteen, a little bit more dangerous, perhaps. It's uh, Alto del Piornal, hundred ninety Ks. It's got some medium mountain beforehand, and then thirteen point six Ks, five percent descent. Thirteen point three Ks, five point six percent. I mean. Like these are climbs that like they go like thirty kilometers an hour on that. Uh, and then stage nineteen to two climbs, nine k six percent. That looks to me like uh, breakaway or maybe Pedersen. And then stage twenty is the big danger where we have multiple five categorized climbs, a cat one nine point two k seven percent, where people will attack him. They have to. And that's followed by 10Ks at 5.6%. But what haven't you heard there is anything approaching double-digit gradients. He was dropped on Pandera on the steep section. He was attacked on Hazelanus on the steep section and then at the end of Nevada. Um, if he's in just – he doesn't need to be in week one shape. If he's just in a Sierra Nevada shape and they don't fuck up majorly tactically, it's going to be extremely difficult for him to lose. Exactly. It's the gradients that do it for me as well when looking at the parkour. As you said it, stage 20, the Puerto de Nova Serrada stage. It's intriguing because this kind of looks like the kind of stage we hope for in a ground tour where we want those like medium mountains throughout the parkour to make sure that there's abilities for teams or riders that want to launch early. Like that, was it Torino stage in the Giro that Bora lit it up by having a rider in the breakaway, then bridge towards that breakaway and so forth and had the action eventually leading to a Simon Yates win that stage. Then last year, stage 20 of the Velta, where action happened early on, Potten as a rider up front and tactical stuff happening in the GC group. Miguel Angel Lopez jumping into a car. Wonderful stuff happens on medium mountain stage. That's what I'm trying to get to. But those climbs that launched it were also climbs that were nearing 8% average for me. And I feel like there's only one climb that comes near those gradients on this parkour, on the stage 20, and it's that Morchuera climb, the second last. but I'm then asking, is that is that too close to the finish for anybody to endanger a one minute and a half gap towards the Remco Evenpool? He didn't actually need to collapse on that climb for this to become beneficial for a Roglic to take the red jersey on this final mountain stage. So I find it hard to believe that the gradients that I see will damage Remco Evenpool enough to make it hard. So I agree with you that he's currently pretty much... the likely winner of this Grand Tour, bar any bad luck, punctures, crashes, we can't know that, hopefully no COVID stuff, and GC riders, that's what I'm hoping for, we haven't had many in the last few days, but it's also a rest day, so I'm scared for tomorrow, but also next to that, there's obviously the opportunity for tactical stuff to happen, we can have a stage where, let's say for example, we're looking at stage 19, that stage where you say breakaway, I'm arguing when I see this, this is breakaway as well, but let's say someone lights up the first climb and we see no quick step riders anymore. Von Wilder has the day that he had yesterday on Sierra Nevada, which was dropping on Perky. Furvaka has a bad day. Mosnada, his crash yesterday evolved into him not being too fine. 
then teams can put pressure on him with multiple riders. But there's not that many teams anymore in GC that have multiple riders that can remotely endanger this man. So I think there's also the aspect that when such stuff happens, for example, let's say Almeida or Ayuso goes up the road and is in a breakaway. Uh, let's say it's an Almeida. Them. Another rider will chase them. You're right. And we saw that with Ben O'Connor and Tame and Ireland's one yesterday. Like that battle will also happen with riders in sixth and seventh and fourth and fifth and riders like that causing them to defend their positions in third and fourth. And that might benefit Remco in the final week because his team might not be, be needed to, to be required to take down every single time gap. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like Roglic last year. Like on stage 20, Jumbo Visma just kind of chilling. They're letting Ineos set the pace, others attacking. Roglic went with the final move, sat in, never had to pull. No problems. Um, denied Ryan Gibbons the win and then Champersail won. Um, but the <laughs> it's what Benji mentioned. Like you look at that stage 20 last year, they were fake news climbs. Don't be, you're saying, oh, they're 6%. No, no, no. Alto de Mugas was 5.7Ks at 8%. And then as a little bit at the top, they were perfect for moves because there was, and then Alto de Prado, 1K, 10.3%. And then it leveled off where there's steep enough gradients, 8, 10, 11% sections, where if you are better, you can get separation. And then you can, when it levels off, you have, if you're Jack Haig, Gino Maida pulling for you, then Mark Pudun, and then it makes a big difference on the flatter sections. These climbs are not fake news climbs on stage 20 of this year's Vuelta. They are like as steady as they come. And so the question is, can Chris Harper pace hard enough on a 5%, 6% climb that's 13Ks long to drop, to have... Avonapol under such pressure in the draft that Roglic can just attack away and then gain huge time. And it seems very, very unlikely to me. Um, the draft benefit is just so much. Now, the problem is week one. If Roglic was on 20 seconds, I think he wins this welter with a pretty comfortable team, with a, with a decent team, because he could clean up bonus seconds if they chase the break. There's perfect climbs for him to take bonus seconds as he did in stage four, but he isn't 150. Bonus seconds won't be enough, I don't think. So, yeah, even a pole and quick step are in pole position, and I, yeah, I still find it really, really hard to believe that he's not going to win, but anything can happen. Tour de Suisse, he collapsed in the heat. Probably he might do uh, again. Who else is going to be the movers? Who is going to be? Obviously, we spoke about Rolich now. He's obviously going to try. Is are you so going to try to get on the podium? Because to me, I don't care about fourth. I know it's a great result mm-hmm. for a nineteen-year-old. You want to be on the podium. You want to try every stage to improve your position and not just be comfortable with fourth. He's he's been very unlucky. Are you so? I think. Yeah, I would like to see him go for for Mars, but again, I don't really see where he can do it. it. It'll require Almeida, right, to bait. Yeah, but I don't see that happening either. I feel like I low-key got, got the feeling that UAE is just trying to stack up that top 10 with their two riders and try and defend their positions each. It's also, there's still only two minutes between them. It's like they keep it close enough for Almeida to be able to be allowed to go for himself because he's still relatively close in GC and he's better than the amount of people that are 
trying to hop over him in GC when it comes to going in breakaways, hopping into the top 10, and they always end up just below Almeida in GC <laughs> after doing that action. And we've seen that with Arden's one yesterday as well, for example. Five seconds behind Almeida, but on paper, Almeida's going to take time on him again on the climbs that come. But the thing for me is, I'm not looking at a Yuzo here. I think Yuzo is going to be hard to take 148 back on Mas, unless he does something a la Plataforma de Gredos, Pogacar attack from far out. But there's no parkour like that mountain stage they had on stage 20 of 2019 that was an amazing stage with like what was it not the stage where Pogacar attacked early got a proper lead and then Lopez crashed in the gravel in some descent or something and oh chaos everywhere loved it that stage but anyway I wanted to talk about Carlos Rodriguez because I think um Mr. Rodriguez will likely drop out of the top five. I think Lopez will surpass him because Lopez is getting better and better while the parkour does not suit him in terms of it's not a gigantic mountain at the end of each stage. I still think there's going to be like that one stage where Lopez can take some time on the Carlos Rodriguez and stuff. What do you think surrounding those two? Yeah, I think if there's one where Rodriguez is looking a bit weak, it's like punching and that would be stage mm -hmm. 17 where it finishes with 4K 7.5%. And maybe if I was Lopez, I'd try Rodriguez there. Um, if I was Roglic, I'd try and win that stage actually as well. And I think yep. Yumbo should go for that. Um, so, but yeah, I'm not expecting it'd be interesting. We're sort of downplaying it. Um, maybe there is more to this parkour once they actually get into it. Maybe stage 20 is harder than we think. Um, I don't know. I think it's very, very shallow stuff, and the, the aero bullet will. It suits him a lot. Uh, but tomorrow's stage we should preview properly. Very, very odd. 191Ks, as I said, 1.5Ks, 6% climb, cresting 8Ks from the finish. I think that it's like the Magnus Court break <clears throat> that he'd always win uh, last year. I think Trek should go all in for Pedersen. He's climbing so, so well. And I... Uh, I, don't know. I think Groves can get over it too. So I think Bike Exchange have to pace for the points. They have to go for it. Um, so I think this goes to the, the, the Peloton. I think Pedersen wins again. I think Pedersen is certainly the one that is likely going to be a rider that is high up on the on the favorites list for this. I am questioning whether there's like 600 meters at 8.3-ish percent in that final stretch. I'm asking, is there an option for a Yumbo to also try and get bonus seconds there, or are we looking at a similar stage to what Peterson already won, where it's more likely to end up being Roglic getting out sprinted by more versatile sprinters than a, a Roglic, for example, beating a Laporte in that Paris stage, for example? What of the is it that? Yeah, type sort or? of similar. I guess there's no we there's no guarantee of crosswinds. That was also three climbs back to back. Um Roglic ended up taking 20 seconds and he could have taken 10 bonus. Uh, I'm not sure it's 6%. I guess there is steeper passing. Yeah, I mean, why not try? But the thing is, they don't have Nathan van Hooydonk. They don't have Wout van Aert. They don't have Christophe Laporte. Can Dennis, Harper, Hessink, Omen do yeah. that pacing? I, I don't think they can. No knock on them. But like Laporte and van Hooydonk are big guys who can hit it hard. So... It's going to be difficult, and I think Trek will be pacing and trying to control. I, I think dropping Pedersen in his current form is going to be hard. I guess always there can be a Bergdo counterattack on the top um, as well <laughs> if there's a lack of control from somebody like a Luis Leon Sanchez. Um, yeah. But I, I'm going with Pedersen. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go for Peterson. I'm gonna go with Ackerman in the hopes that Milano gets something right in in getting that set up. And Ackerman, like he he's had proper uphill sprints before. And I hope I'm not underrating this finish by selecting someone like Ackerman, but Ackerman at his best this year, the best of this year, as in like Napoloni stage, for example, should be able to at least compete here. He was looking good on that one stage where Peterson took him over because Ackerman read 500 meters instead of 200 meters, apparently. But, uh, and then he launched early. So let's hope he doesn't launch early. And let's hope he competes. Why not? I see that as a possibility. Maybe it's super hard and it's like Impy, Bev and Roglic sprinting, but I'm, I'm not sure. Eight, nine Ks from the finish, that's a long time to hold a, yeah. a very slender five, six second advantage. But anyway, that's the Vuelta. Big third week coming up. Well, maybe not so big. Depends how they play it. I want to talk about now the big Belgian super talent, Sean Outerbrooks, who won Tour de l'Avenir uh, which was, I think the last couple of stages were televised. And he is yep. 19 years old, uh, born in 2003, which is terrifying. If you don't know, Tour de Lavenir <laughs> is an under-23 race, of a, uh, which is nine stages. It's literally translated as Tour of the Future. It's like the under-23 Tour de France. And there's some big mountain stages. And generally, in the last 10 years, good performance in Tour de Lavenir, if you're young, has been indicative of a very successful world tour. Uh, career and so Brooks, if you don't know he joined Borahans Grow World Tour team this year but he has mainly raced dot pro and 2.1 races he's only done the Astor Golds he's only World Tour race and he was allowed to do a Tour de l'Avenir as a 19 year old so yeah. he what's he called in Belgium Benji the next Avenapol <laughs> not the next Merckx I think uh, the next Evenepoel was his first like nickname when he started breaking through when he was, I, I think when he was still riding for like a Belgian local club before he went to Autoeder Bayern, which was like the juniors team for Bora in existence. And first of all, it's Kian, not Kian. Just wanted to get that out there. Kian Eitebrooks is his name. That's how you pronounce it. And uh, I don't know if he's got like uh, a Shebdal Scud-like uh, nickname yet haven't seen that yet they're probably still trying to pronounce his first name properly in the first place but i think you had a good nickname last time out of the pants that's a bit silly though i I don't think we should make that a a real thing for this man that's his literal name yeah isn't it Uh, roughly roughly but anyway when it comes to him as a rider i feel like we've seen quite some growth in the last period as in obviously he did well at the juniors like we 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 can't really rate the junior is that much in the sense that obviously we can rate it. It was great, but I swear when Auto Aided Bayer, that junior team was riding races, they were like getting one, two, three, four, five in some races left and right. And it became clear that that team had the strongest riders in the races that they were competing in, is what I would dare to uh, say. Now, you often can question how riders' progression should be in, in those years, as in certain riders jump from a junior team straight to a world tour team some riders have a junior team then a u23 team then a world tour team which is the old school progression of moving up and we see that for example with i think we can look at yumbo development team at being a team that has basically youngsters through local circuits and through junior circuits go towards their u23 team and that u23 team can ride lower end races that are on u23 level and once riders are good enough, like Estonia Mitted, for example, in Norwegian on that Jumbo development team, 
then they start rising with the pros and in Algar, for example, at the start of the year. I feel like United Brooks has done it differently because, well, Bora doesn't really have a U23 team right now. Well, they didn't have it at the time. I think they just signed a deal with Tirol and a different team, Lotto Kettenhaus, Conti teams, to use them as like development teams in the future. But how did that work for Kian Eitebrugge? Because I swear he went from just junior outweighted buyers straight to Bora, right? So they did it slightly different to differently to Marco Brenner. So Brenner is a similar age. I think he just turned uh, 20. He's a year younger than, uh, oh, six months younger, sorry, than Eitebrugge. He has done, he joined DSM in 2021 and he did uh, Kerner. Romandy, Dauphiné, and some top pro races. And then this year he's done the Vuelta, Dauphiné, Romandy, done a lot of races, 60 race days so far, and he hasn't finished the Vuelta yet. At 20, no Tour de l'Avenir for Brenner um, to compare him to the U23. So seems like with uh, Bora have gone a little bit slower, and it's been good because we saw a Tour of Norway, as you remember, the greatest race ever. Uh, Eitebrooks came, uh, I think, sixth on the mountaintop finish there, which was in front of Chavez, 123 behind Avonapool. That was a very, very high-level performance. And in Tour de l'Avenir, he pretty much just replicated that. Uh, he also had a good performance in Sibiu Cycling Tour, where he came third on GC behind Aliotti, who I think did well in L'Avenir when he was in under 23. He's 23 years old at Bora. Uh, so that is how Eitbrooks did at Lavenir. There was the first big mountain stage, big mountain top finish, uh, the Col de la Madeleine from Saint-François-Longchamp climb. It's basically up to where's 13.7K is 8%. And by the way, all of this is in an article on lanternrouge.com.au with graphs and very easy to follow uh, there. But it was a pretty hard stage by U23 standards um, for like three and a half hours beforehand. France paced really hard and then Eitbrooks with 10Ks to go just destroyed everybody and rode away. And Stalin admitted Michael Hessman on Yamba Visma Dev for big guys. They were going pretty well, particularly Hessman. And Lenny Martinez, I think, uh, struggled. So he did 5.88 watts per kilo for 41 minutes. And that's really, really good. That's, he did 6.1, I think, for 31 minutes, so roughly the same curve, shorter duration uh, in Norway. And that both those performances are comfortably within what a Grand Tour top 10 rider should be doing to get a Grand Tour top 10. Now, obviously, you it's not just about that. You have to uh, be consistent for three weeks, do it after hard stages, good TT, not crash, yada, yada, yada. But he's got the watts to be in that region at, already at 19 years old. And stage eight uh, was quite a hard short stage with two long climbs. Again, I think he did 5.5 for 45 minutes. Not as good, but it's a bit harder. And then the last mountain stage, that kind of nothing happened. Went to high altitude and the GC group kind of stayed together. So he cleaned everybody up at 19. And yeah, I think... That's better performances, by the way, than what Vlasov and Lutschenko did in the tour on any climb, which people might be surprised by. So, I don't. What do you think Boris should do with him, knowing all that info, Benji? Do you give him some World Tour GC targets now for next year? 
Well, I think he's one Avenir. I don't think he needs to do uh, three more Avenirs, despite him being able to do so, since he's only 19. That would be pretty funny to do in like four Avenirs in a row. But I think the smarter idea is to build further on what they have built so far. They send him to some .pro races to try for GC. For example, Trove Yals already got 16. That's one where I'm like, that's interesting. Trove Norway, the one you mentioned as well. Like, these races are interesting to see whether the rider can fight against the riders from World Tour that are also competing in these races, like in Norway and Sothov, to compare himself to an Evenepoel or a, a Plap or uh, a Vine, for example, in that race. And he was holding up quite well in those races. That is certain. Again, you mentioned it. It's not the same as in a Grand Tour because you need to count so many other factors in there. But I feel like now is the option to next year try and build him up one level higher than that. Go one level higher, find a World Tour race that most fits his type of rider and i'm when it comes to youngsters i'm always looking at a, a tour de swiss kind of race stuff like that or are you earlier thinking about the likes of a uae tour or a, a catalonia which races do you think are the ones that he should go to or are we overrating his pure climbing probably not eh? like this is a pure climber when it comes to his performances right yeah, I think he can pretty much do anything and, and try and get a good result already in top 10 now. He's he's climbing that well. I think Tour of the Alps is a nice one. Does Should he do a Grand Tour in his second professional year? I would say yes. Well done. I think he can top 10 the Welter pretty comfortably next year. Um, he should probably be aiming for a top five in the Welter, to be honest, next year. And nah. you're like, like, Why? He's twenty. Like we can't go into the first. Age? We can't go into the first grunter and say he's got a top five at his Vuelta, guys. Okay, I'm doing the same with Rodriguez and Ayuso. But like, <laughs> everyone he's keeps underrating the these young guys. Him, okay? They're no, ready but now. It's different. It's different because Belgian Mina's got to kill this man. I don't want that to no, happen. He won't. went to Bora, avoiding it. He's lucky Avenipol he? exists. Yeah. yeah Imagine if so Avenipol well. didn't exist. How much more oh. hype there would have been about Lavenier. He is lucky. Because yeah, it would have been blown up so much more. He's you know, Welter with Avonpool leading has taken so much of the shine off him. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe he lives in Avonpool's shadow. I don't know. But yeah, top five Welter next year, reasonable target, I think, for him. And it's crazy when you think that he's the youngest ever winner of Tour Lavenier, cleaned everyone up, and he's not even the best teenage GC rider in the world. Ayuso's yeah. much better right now. Ayuso's climbing much, much faster. It's it's crazy. And um, the reason that Ayuso didn't get the chance to fight for that same like name, the the same uh, plaque saying, oh, the youngest true Lavanier winner is last year he crashed out, if I recall correctly, halfway through Lavanier, after also losing some time in a crash earlier on. Like obviously crashes can be the rider of the can be the fall of the rider sometimes. I, I don't remember the specific consequence uh, like situation of the crash. Uh, nor do I do it from uh, for Eitelblux because most of it was not on TV of Avenir in the earlier stages. Uh, but he came back towards the end of this Avenir and the mountain stages, he secured it. And the question then is, did Ayuso miss out on an Avenir victory there? Who knows? We can never know that. But there's also the aspect of like... Who cares? When it, exactly. It he has matter. a contract through 2028. And he's exactly. going for the Vuelta no, Gives a fuck. And... There's some people that are saying like, okay, but 50% of the people that are winning Avenir don't get to do what we are saying about a Pogacar who won Avenir, who ends up winning the Tour. Bernal, who won Avenir, ends up winning the Tour. Then there's a Tobias Foss who 
was looking good when it comes to the Giro last year, being a top 10 rider there, looking pretty good in the mountains and good as a time trawler, but not necessarily breaking through this year. Kissed the floor a few times in, I think, Algarve earlier on in the season and didn't pull through at all in the Giro this year. So there's this thing where Ruben Fernandez in 2013, he's, he's now riding, I think, for... Is it Cofidis? I don't even know what it yeah, is. Cofidis. It's age. Like, is it age? The age at which yeah. they win it? Yeah. Okay. The older winners. So here are the winners from... Not, this is in the article that also did. The 19-year-old and 20-year-old winners. Aitabrooks, Guru, Pagacha, Miguel Angel Lopez, Quintana, Bernal, Molama, Warren Bargui. The 21- and 22-year-old winners, Ronald Sicard, Esteban Chavez, Tobias Johannesson, who was 22 the day after he won it, Mark Soler, uh, Jan Bacalance, Foss, and Ruben Fernandez. So the younger you win the, the U23 race, goes without saying almost, that the better you're probably going to be in the pros. This is since 2007 when they made it a U23 race. So age matters a lot when young men are developing. Like a 22-year-old man yeah. is not the same as a 19-year-old obviously so if you're 19 and destroy everybody who are two and a half three years older than you you're probably pretty good uh whereas if you've been basically riding like a pro for three years after you finish school and you're more developed and you win that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to kick on in the pros to to the expectation you might still be like young bacalance and esteban chavez and they they've had good world tour careers particularly Chavez yeah but um doesn't mean they're gonna win the tour so Aitabruk's looking good from a historical uh perspective I think yeah there's just so much young talent (laughs) (laughs) Rodriguez Belgium looking good and Spain as well yeah is it Spain not is it starting to feel like the talent is coming from the same countries a bit recently like Spain Belgium or do you think that it's gonna spread out more uh, I think COVID in particular has hurt non-European countries like America, Australia. Um, yeah. I don't know the effect of Brexit on the British riders being able to race in Europe. I presume that didn't get easier. But during COVID, it's much more difficult for the Americans and Australians or North Americans to come over and not just them, the Colombians as well. It seems like where are the Colombians in in the Lavinier, to Lavinier. Um, yeah. Where's the Bernal Quintana? And I would say we've just had COVID starting from 2020. That's not going to have helped uh, the non-European nations. Wait, was there not something last year? I think there's like this whole drama last year where Colombia was not allowed to ride Avenir or something for some reason. I swear there's a drama we're missing in last year's Avenir when it comes to Colombia, but I'm not 100% certain because... I thought that was... Um... Baby Giro, Colombia, and oh, Britain. Britain got yeah. banned because they're too good. What a race. Yeah, what a yeah, yeah, yeah. race. My bad. Not Avenir. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lavenir still has its own problems. Like, they, there was a Colombian team there, an Ecuadorian team, uh, an American and Australian. And listen, the Australians like Blake Quick, he's got a contract at Bex. Uh, Jensen Plauras got a contract at Alperson, who will be on a world tour. Pardon? Porter at Bex as well, if I recall correctly. Is he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he is. Um, Dylan George has gone to FDJ Conti, so he obviously he'll be flying next year. And Matthew Dinham, I think he's 22. He, he'll probably get a contract too. So the Australian yeah. team, like, 
those guys probably they will be okay. And like the British team too, Leo Hayes and Ineos, Gloria Yumbo, and even with the American team. So I don't know. I just think it kind of helped um, them. And I don't know. To the Lavinia, get rid of the team time trials. Maybe we'll cover it properly. I hate the team time <laughs> trials. Archie Ryan as well. Just wanted to watch out for. We've talked a lot about Aether Brooks, but Archie Ryan, without the time trial, he would have been within a minute of Aether yeah. Brooks on GC. He looks very, very good, particularly on 6% climbs. I think he could be quite good. I think so as well. I'm just intrigued by, I think also Hesmon was really good in this race, was in the lead early, held on for quite a bit. Obviously, Aether Brooks pulled him out of that leader jersey later on. But, well, you know what the funniest part was of Tour de Lavenir for me as a Belgian is the fact that the Belgian Federation decided to put the U23 Belgian Championships during Tour de Lavenir when the best Belgians are going to the Tour de Lavenir. <laughs> what timing. What timing. <laughs> uh, but but otherwise, Tour of Britain, uh, the start list is chalk and cheese compared to last year, which had Van Aert, Alaphilippe and Hayter battling it out. Uh, no disrespect to the current guys. It's just the reality of it. It doesn't fall in as good a slot with the Australian World Champs, I don't think, uh, to be a tune-up race. And Peacock was the big favorite, but Corbin Strong, the Kiwi on Israel Premier Tech, won the first uphill kick, probably the hardest finish of the race. Had a frailer, uh, enemy's brother, Serrano fourth, Peacock fifth, Dylan Turn six. So Israel obviously here for points, uh, Deluxe. And speaking of points, there was the American Maryland Classic last night, uh, which you may have caught in Baltimore. It's not, it was nice to watch a race just in a different country yeah. for once. Uh, actually, like even if it's not the best race, like I still, it's just nice to watch a different race. One dot pro, so two hundred points to the winner. It had Israel, EF, Trek, Bex lining up. No Arkea, Kofidis, Lotto, Movistar, so a big opportunity to take some points back. And uh, EF uh, kind of stuffed it. <laughs> they had Paulus <laughs> and Piccolo in a lead group of Van Mark, Zukowski, and Schoens, and they just didn't work well together. And they ended up coming third and fifth in a group of five, uh, and then Court won their bunch sprint for sixth. So they, they cleaned up a lot of points, but it could have been a little bit better. It just goes to show yep. to me, Benji, that even if you fuck up, even if you don't win these races, if they had another five of these every year, even if they would stack the top ten, just yep. like Arkea and Coffers do with their plethora of races, and EF would nowhere near be in the relegation discussion. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there's an aspect to that when it comes to the American calendar having been devoured in the last couple of years, Tour of Utah not being present, uh, the other race, California, having disappeared. Uh, plenty of like American one-day races that were on the calendar that are not there anymore. And I feel like it's the first US classic that I've seen in a while. And it's interesting to see them in the evening because I, I enjoy that, like the Quebecs and uh, Montreal's of this world is also an evening for European people, so uh, I don't mind watching it at that time. But there's also the aspect of, there's a counter-argument that an EF has the ability to also sign up for some Belgian, French, classic, and so forth. They probably have a surface course in Europe as well somewhere. Like, do you think there's the double aspect of one, they're missing a local calendar, obviously, that they can benefit from, but also the, the fact that they didn't anticipate soon enough for getting into races in the European circuit, because I'd argue that's also a thing, because I think there were definitely 1.1 races where they could have signed up and didn't. Yeah, of course. They, like, they could have done um, <laughs> done more with that. Like, I remember Vorta's, um, 
at the start of 2022 was was on Twitter kind of laughing about not going or having to go to quote unquote you know rubbish races so yeah like they won Mont Ventoux last year um they didn't send a very good team to it last year they sent a better team to it this year they took a lot of points I, I was remiss in not saying by the way Maryland Classic was won by Seb Van Mark uh yeah. that's his <laughs> he joined Israel in 2021 that is his first win for three years since oh. Britannic Classic so Damn, he's on a big contract, isn't he? <laughs> and won a, he's won one World Tour race. And oh no, on in twenty twelve. In twenty twelve, yeah, it was, wow, crazy. What a race! Like <laughs> for Marcus' career, watching it as a Belgian, it was really interesting because he was the upcoming guy back in the day, and seeing him beat uh, Tom Bonin in that omelope in a one-up sprint at the end was magnificent to see that was fantastic the underdog david versus goliath because tom bonin was near his prime years not in his prime year but near his prime years at that time in his career and it was just fantastic to see now it never came out at the top of the crop he got so close in roubaix so many times and that's unfortunate to see to the point where i feel a lot of people feel bad for sep von mark a lot because this man has had punctures on every single race he's ridden in, in his entire career. And I definitely think that he's had a lot more bad luck than other riders in the world. And it's unfortunate to see. And I hope that he still gets some kind of bigger classic near the end of his career somewhere. But I'm afraid that we are nearing that period or in that period. And it's unfortunate to see that. I think he's got one year left at Israel. Hopefully he can do a classic here or there because you don't know when it comes to uh, wildcards, do you? Because Israel is likely to be promote, uh, demoted. Yeah. Are they getting wildcards, you think? I think they get one day, so set will be... Well, if they get relegated, who gets fired? Like, does Sylvan Adams, he can't fire himself for the firm contract, so he, he can't <laughs> get fired. Um, does Rick Verbrugge get fired for, like, signing Sepp to a, probably a pretty a handy deal. contract, Belgian, Belgian friends? Um, like, I don't know. They've had some bad luck, but some, I'm interested to see because not heads never roll in cycling. No one ever gets fired. It's not like <laughs> football. Football, you have two, two bad years. You manage it. You're out. Yeah, exactly. Like you're gone. It's like uh performance culture. Uh, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe it's better that people have longer to develop because injuries happen. I don't know. Maybe I think it's a little bit too far in, in cycling. But we'll <laughs> see. Um, it'd be interesting to see with the relegation battle, whether you, whether UCI even go through with it. But that was our rest day recap. Bit of chat about relegation. Avenir, Vuelta. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll uh, see you with uh, the Stage 16 recap tomorrow. Ciao. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.